Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz discusses expectation for stocks and bonds and then shares her insights on your portfolio plan. Then, Susan Jabinski and Christine Benz talk about handling the volatile market. And finally, Keith Reed Cleveland tells you what questions you need to ask a financial advisor. Let's get started. Here is Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. We've seen a long run of tremendous equity market performance. We've also seen a long run of pretty decent bond market performance, last year notwithstanding. So that has many market forecasters, when they're called upon to forecast what the stock and bond markets might return over the next decade, that has many of these folks calling for fairly muted returns, at least on U.S. stocks and on U.S. high-quality bonds. So this is a slide that I grabbed from my colleagues in Morningstar Investment Management. They periodically put out these capital markets assumptions. And what you can see is a very low return expectation for U.S. stocks, just 1.6%, and a similar return expectation for U.S. bonds. And they arrive at these forecasts by looking at a couple of different things. So for stocks, they're looking at their expectation of earnings growth. They're looking at where dividend yields are. And they're looking at their expectation of price multiple contraction or expansion. Because U.S. equity market valuations are still pretty high, they're thinking that the U.S. market valuation, U.S. multiples, will probably contract over the next decade. That's one reason why those return expectations are so muted. For fixed income, the prediction is fairly straightforward. Starting bond yields are a pretty good predictor of what you're apt to earn from the bond market over the next decade. We're low today in terms of fixed income yields. And so that depresses the return prospects for fixed income assets. These figures are not inflation adjusted, so it's important to factor that in as well. So if we have even a normal inflation rate over the next decade, that means that the investor in a 60-40 U.S. portfolio will probably be sort of flatlining over the next decade. If there's a good news story here, I would say it's that our team is expecting relatively better results from non-U.S. stocks, especially emerging market stocks, but also developed market stocks over the next decade. So that's another potential catalyst for reviewing your U.S. versus non-U.S. exposure, especially if you've been practicing a policy of benign neglect. It's, it's potentially worth revisiting those exposures. I would also urge you to check out my compendium of capital markets forecasts. This is something I put together at the beginning of every year. I recently put one out for 2022. It incorporates what our Morningstar Investment Management team is thinking, but it also incorporates outside firms' capital markets forecasts because I do think it's helpful to get an array of opinions on this. I would note that our Morningstar team tends to be sort of at toward the low end of return forecasts, especially for U.S. stocks. I would say there's more commonality in terms of the forecasts when it comes to fixed income assets, in part because the relationship between starting yields and returns is so straightforward. But I would survey those forecasts to just get your arms around what these firms are thinking in terms of what you might expect various asset classes to return. To a firm, I would say that they're all forecasting better returns from non-U.S. stocks relative to U.S. stocks over the 
the next decade, and that owes largely to lower starting valuations on non-U.S. stocks today. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Christine Benz talks portfolio planning. So the first step in the process is to ask and answer the question, how am I doing? And as I mentioned, this really depends on your life stage, the way that you would go about making this evaluation. If you're someone who is still accumulating assets for retirement, still working, the key things you want to look at would be your savings rate over the past year. Many people have in their minds that 10% is adequate. I actually think for many households that's probably too low, that if possible, setting the bar at 15% or even higher if you're part of a higher income household is a really worthy goal. So look back on how much you've managed to save over the past couple of years and see whether you are in line with where you're hoping to be. Also look at how much you've managed to save so far. So we've had very strong market performance, but investors might be hard-pressed to know whether they have saved enough so far. I would refer you to these benchmarks that Fidelity Investments periodically puts out that helps investors gauge the adequacy of their nest eggs based on their life stage. So Fidelity's benchmark for someone who's age 35 is that having saved two times your salary at that life stage is a worthy target. By the time someone is age 40, the target is four times salary. At age 55, the target is seven times salary. And then at age 65, the target is age 10 to 11 times salary. These aren't perfect benchmarks. In fact, my colleague Amy Arnott did a deep dive on how investors might uh, think about these benchmarks in the context of their own situations. But nonetheless, I think they're decent starting points for deciding whether you have saved enough or whether you potentially need to kick up your savings rate even more. I would also say for folks who are getting close to retirement, you can start thinking about withdrawal rates and, and the sustainability of whatever your withdrawal rate might be as a lens to, de- to decide whether you've managed to amass enough in savings. I think it also helps for people at this life stage to use some kind of a retirement calculator to see whether their plan is on track. So a couple of a couple of calculators that I like are Vanguard's Retirement Nest Egg Calculator. I also have long recommended T. Rowe Price's Retirement Income Calculator. Whatever calculator you use, I think ideally you would use a calculator that's somewhat holistic, that's taking into account your tax situation, that's taking into account all of your assets for a given goal. So your spouse's assets, your own assets, your non-retirement assets that you might bring in into retirement, uh, your non-portfolio sources of income. So Social Security will be uh, uh, income 
producer for many of us in retirement. So you want to find a holistic tool. You also want to find a tool that's using what I consider realistic return assumptions. So if you're looking at a tool that's assuming 10% equity market returns over the next decade, I think that's probably a little bit too aggressive. So you'd want to take a look at what sort of return expectations the calculator is embedding and use that when deciding whether a tool is in the right ballpark in terms of your overall plan. If you're in retirement, I think you want to come at this question of how you're doing in a little bit different way. And the key gauge of your plan's wellness, of your portfolio's wellness, is your spending rate in retirement. So if you're looking at your spending rate, you want to start with your total spending and subtract out any non-portfolio income sources that you have. So if you have Social Security, for example, that's supplying a portion of your, your spending, you'll subtract that out. The amount that's left over is your portfolio spending. You'll then divide that amount, so assuming you've come up with an annual portfolio expenditure, you'll then divide that amount by your total portfolio to, to come up with what your withdrawal rate is. And then you'll want to look at whether that is a sustainable withdrawal rate. Many investors are familiar with what's called the 4% guideline for retirement spending. I think that's still a decent starting point for thinking about your plan. Um, the basic idea is that 4% guideline assumes that someone wants a more or less fixed withdrawal when adjusted for inflation in retirement. So if someone has a million dollar portfolio, that means he or she could take 40,000 in year one of retirement, and then just inflation adjusts that dollar amount thereafter. That's the basic system underpinning the 4% guideline. So to use um, a simple example, if someone were taking 4% of an $800,000 portfolio, that would translate into a $32,000 withdrawal in year one of retirement. Then if inflation runs at 3% in the next year, you'd give yourself a little bit of a raise to encounter to account for that inflation, so you'd be up near 33000 in year two. We recently did some work on this topic of sustainable withdrawal rates at Morningstar. One thing we came away with was the idea that new retirees especially might want to be a little bit conservative with respect to their withdrawal rates. So they might want to think about starting withdrawals in the low to mid 3% range, assuming that they have a balanced portfolio a 30-year time horizon and want a 90 degree, 90% degree of certainty of not outliving their assets. That situation may or may not match your own portfolio parameters, your own plan parameters. Certainly for people who have been retired for 15 years don't need to be that conservative. They can certainly take more of their portfolios because their life expectancies are shorter. So if you're someone who's 75 and you're looking at this, you don't necessarily want to assume a 30-year time horizon. So in our research, which we've made available and discussed at length on Morningstar.com, we've talked about how asset allocation and how time horizon figure into this. And the print, I'm afraid, on this slide is, is quite small, but I'll walk you through some of the overarching takeaways. 
One is that if you have a longer time horizon th than 30 years, so if you have a 40-year time horizon, if you're a very young retiree, you'd want to be more cautious still than that three mid, mid to low 3% range. You'd want to be probably under 3% with a balanced portfolio. On the other hand, the person who has a 20-year time horizon in retirement could reasonably take closer to 4% or possibly even over 4%, possibly closer to 5%. So time horizon matters a lot in all of this. One thing I would call out though is that swinging for the fences in terms of higher equity exposure really didn't move the needle in, in our research. So even though equities have had a higher return than bonds historically and certain over, certainly over the past 10 and 15 years. The issue with ramping up equity exposure to 80 or 90 percent is that the portfolio courts more sequence of return risk. That means that the portfolio, the person who's just embarking on retirement, could encounter a weak market environment, and that would mean that he or she is pulling from depreciating equity assets. And that's not something that you'd want. You'd want to be able to draw upon cash and bonds rather than your equities at such a juncture. And that's the risk of that's the risk that having too much in equities sets you up for. Next, Susan Jabinski from Morningstar Inc. and Christine Benz discuss how to protect yourself in volatile markets. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Stocks have gotten off to a rough start so far in 2022, and high-quality bonds have struggled as well. Joining me today to discuss some practical steps that investors can take to improve their portfolios and plans during volatile times is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Hi, Christine. Nice to see you today. Hi, Susan. Good to see you. So, Christine, let's start out by talking about what investors should avoid doing in a market like this. One of the key ones would be to resist the urge to peek too frequently at your portfolio. I think that sometimes investors can get in there and make changes that they might otherwise not be inclined to make. So don't look too often. Also resist big either or moves, you know, where you're either in stocks or out of stocks. Those sorts of maneuvers rarely pay off. And I think the other thing is don't try to catch the bottom. Don't assume that even if the market falls a lot, that that's the absolute down point. There may be more, uh, more down markets ahead. So don't, uh, don't try to plow a bunch of cash into the market, assuming that you've caught the bottom. You may never catch the bottom. And I, I would say don't sweat that. So Christine, you've brought a short list of activities that can actually be productive when markets are down a bit. And one of them is tax loss selling. Um, how realistic is it that investors today could engage in tax loss selling because of the, you know, the tremendous bull market that we've seen in general over the past decade or so? That's a really good question, Susan. And from a practical standpoint, if you're a mutual fund investor, if you're someone who holds broadly diversified funds, you're probably not going to find a lot of tax loss selling opportunities in this market. On the other hand, um, some investors may be able to. So individual stock investors, especially those who have purchased positions recently may be able to do some tax loss harvesting. If you have more narrowly focused funds in your portfolio and you've made recent purchases there, 
perhaps you may be able to find some tax loss candidates. And then I would also call out people who are using the specific share identification method of tracking their cost basis. They may be able to cherry pick some recently recently purchased positions. So some people I think indeed may be able to find some opportunities, some may not. And again, investors can even rebuy something similar if they want to maintain that exposure, right? That's right. So if you are interested in tax loss selling, I urge people to get familiar with the wash sale rule, which basically means that you can't turn around and buy the same or even what the IRS calls a substantially identical security in its place within 30 days of having sold it. So keep that in mind. What I would say, though, is that investors do have a fair amount of leeway in this space in that you could, say, sell an actively managed large cap growth fund and buy an index tracking large cap growth fund, and you would not run afoul of the wash sale rule. So you do have some wiggle room. And what about tax loss selling in an IRA? Is that even possible? Well, it used to be, Susan, it used to be not advisable because it essentially meant that you'd need to liquidate all of your IRAs. But now it's not even possible because the uh, miscellaneous itemized deduction uh, category went away as of the 2018 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So it's not even an option. Take it off the table, even if you've had some losses in your IRA recently. But speaking of IRAs, you know, you do note that converting traditional IRA assets to Roth IRA assets during a market like this could be a good idea for some investors. Right. That's absolutely true, Susan. All else being equal, you want to do conversions in down markets if you possibly can, because the taxes that will be due on the conversions will be dependent on the value of the securities in your IRA that haven't yet been taxed. So you want to try to look for these opportunities where things are down a little bit, certainly get some tax advice. For a lot of people, though, doing a series of conversions over a period of years is going to be a better idea than making conversions all in a single year. But this is a spot to get some tax advice. Just check to see whether conversions are even advisable for you, given your, the particulars of your situation. And then finally, Christine, you say that making contributions in a market like this is a good idea. It is. So if you haven't yet funded an IRA for 2021, you have until April 18th of this year to make that contribution. If you haven't made your 2022 contribution, you can go ahead and make it as well. And the idea is that if you are putting money to work, why not put it to work when stocks are down, when securities are down a little bit as they have been so far this year? Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for these great ideas to help us as investors have a little bit sense of more control over our portfolios during these somewhat tricky market times. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Lastly, here is Keith Reed Cleveland from Morningstar, Inc. Picking a financial advisor can be challenging no matter where you are in your investment journey. So here are five questions you can ask a financial advisor to find out if they're the right one for you. One, what's your specialty? Some financial advisors focus strictly on investments, while others focus on different parts of financial planning, including investments, insurance, and budgeting. You'll want to keep this in mind depending on your goals. Two, are you a fiduciary? 
Being a fiduciary means that an advisor has to put their client's interests ahead of their own. Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, says fiduciaries are legally obligated to recommend the best products for you given your situation. Non-fiduciaries aren't held to that same standard. Three, how do you charge for your services? Some advisors recommend products and receive commissions. Fee-only advisors don't. They charge various services. Fee-based advisors are a mix of both. They may charge fees and accept commissions. Advisors can offer their services on an hourly basis, per project, or take a percentage of their clients' holdings. As for a cost estimate. Four, what are your credentials? It can be hard to figure out what the letters after financial advisor's name really mean. CFP stands for Certified Financial Planner, and CHFC stands for Chartered Financial Consultant. Look for these when you're searching for a financial planner. A CFA is a Chartered Financial Analyst. Look for this credential when seeking investment advice. Five, how often should we be in contact? You may want to be hands-on with your portfolio, act like it doesn't exist, or anything in between. Set expectations with your advisor from the start to know what your time commitment will be. Ask questions to empower yourself as an investor. You may find a financial advisor who can help you reach your goals. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.